When we say we are saved by grace alone, what are we saying? What exactly does that mean? We'll find out here today on Graceful Truth as we continue our look at the five solas. Stick around. Hi there and welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. We're continuing our series on the five solas, those five pillars that the church stands on. By grace alone, we've been saved. We've been saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, through scripture alone. To God alone be the glory. Those are the five solas. Today's sola is that of grace. We've been saved by grace alone. And why this is important is the subject of our time today. Join us. Here's Pastor Steve. This morning we want to look at the third in our series. We've been in a series um, dealing with uh, the five solos of the Reformation. As far as a way of, of review, remember what we've been over. We've talked about these five solas. And the first one was sola scriptura, the Bible alone. And we spent um, a whole hour dealing with that. And then we looked at solus Christus, Christ alone. And today we're going to be looking at uh, sola gratia, which means grace alone. And so we want to be reminded that in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us this. It says, he saved us, God being that he, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. One thing that I'm reminded of when I was younger, uh, even probably even before junior high school, we had um, several neighbors that were kind of off and distant on our, our property and the people would live up in the hills, and, and I remember there was one teacher, her name was Mrs. Lewis, and she had this beautiful home up in the hills, uh, kind of a mile or so away from our house. My brother, Johnny, used to help her with the pool. She had a pool, so that was pretty neat back there. And um, he used to clean her pool for her, and he knew her, and he, she was one of his teachers. And I remember the day when she called me and said, would you be interested in a job? And I thought, well, what kind of job is this? And she said, well, I just need somebody to work here and help me. Um, could be pulling weeds. It would be cleaning the pool. It could be doing a lot of different things. And I said, definitely, I'm interested in a job. I would think I was 12 or 13, 14, something like that. So I couldn't go out and get a regular job. And I remember going over there, packing my lunch, hiking over there through the woods, getting to her house. And the first day, she said, see that? That driveway out there with all the, the rock, it, was like a, it wasn't a paved driveway, it was just rock. And she said, see all those weeds? Well, guess what? <laughs> I want them all gone. And I'm looking at this, and it just, see, I mean, she had a long driveway, okay? And she goes, don't feel you got to finish it today. And I'm like, really? I mean, you know. Uh, so I remember for days, if not weeks, 
going to work with my lunch over there in the humidity of the hot Pennsylvania summer, sitting there in her driveway, pulling out painstakingly all these crazy weeds that were growing in her driveway. And I'm kind of a perfectionist mentality, I guess you might say. So I want everything done. So I, I couldn't let one little weed just go, you know. So it was very a very thorough weeding of her driveway that she paid for. But I remember sitting there in that hot sum, su- uh, summer, the sun and the humidity and everything. And then I remember hearing her, her children, who were grown at the time, uh, playing in the pool. And I thought, oh. That pool looks so good, you know, and it was just, but, you know, I, I did this for several weeks and um, finally, I guess I proved myself and she, 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 you know, she would pay me at the end of each day. And I remember at the end of the first day, I probably finished an eighth of her driveway, but I felt pretty good about what I did and she was pleased. And so she gave me what probably ended up being about two bucks an hour. And uh, I thought, wow, I got money. I earned this money. And I remember walking home thinking, man, this is, this is good. I like this, you know. And I, I say that to say this. We all have probably had similar experiences. We go to work. We hopefully enjoy what we do. Um, and even if we don't enjoy what we do, we know that at the end, whether it's at the end of the week or every two weeks, someone's going to hand you something for doing what you do. There's some kind of pay involved. And in America, that's just, you know, ingrained into us. And so I say all that to say this. When we come to the Christian message of grace and grace alone, that flies in the face of everything that we have been taught and brought up with. And, and it's a very hard concept to understand. Even as a Christian, it's hard to understand sometimes. Somebody said, when we use the term grace alone, what we mean is that our salvation from the wrath of God, our deliverance from hell, is because of something good in God and not because of anything good in us. See, that that flies in the face of what people think today when it comes to salvation. A couple truths here I just want you to focus in on before we actually get into the, the, the outline here. Grace means that there's something good in God. It has to. But secondly, grace means there's nothing, nothing whatsoever good in us. Everything we believe about God's grace may be comprehended in those two statements. That there's something good in God, and we all confess that. But I think the second part, that there's nothing good in us. I don't know about you, but my pride kicks in and thinks, well, now wait a minute. (laughs) There's some things that are good in me. And it sounds almost too harsh, that statement that there's nothing good in us. It sounds too judgmental. It sounds too negative, you might say. How can we say that there's nothing good in us? Do all good people go to heaven? If you have a problem understanding this concept, you're not alone. I read some statistics this past week, and one survey said 84% of evangelical Christians agreed with the statement that says, when it comes to salvation, God helps those who help themselves. Let me say that again. 
of professing Christians believe in the concept that God helps those, when it comes to salvation, God helps those who help themselves. Another statistic which I found alarming was 49% agreed that there are other ways to come to God besides Jesus Christ alone. Now, this isn't just people on the street. These are professing Christians. 34% of evangelicals, mind you, say yes to the proposition that all good people go to heaven. They would affirm that statement. And yet when we look at the Bible, when we look at Romans chapter 3, we've been through this, but let's just kind of reacquaint ourselves with Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Paul makes a very wide-sweeping statement, a very authoritative statement. He says there's none, no one righteous, not even one. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. But He says, all have turned away. They have all together become, look at that word, worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. You notice there, he injects that little phrase, not even one, twice. Because I'm sure his readers would say, wow, wait a minute. I'm sure he has other people in mind. (laughs) I mean, me, you know. But no, he says, nobody. Those words can't be avoided. Brothers and sisters, they're in the word of God. Paul penned them for a purpose. He wanted us to understand that there's no one righteous, that there's no one who understands, that there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Now, you might not agree with those words, but at least you must admit that the Apostle Paul is clear in his statement He's not leaving any wiggle room. He's indicting humanity right across the board. Total depravity. We know that as as the doctrine of total depravity. And something within us just kind of rises up and says, well, wait a minute. That can't be true. Not everybody. But that's exactly what Paul says. Here's the simple truth. See, unless we grasp our true condition, unless we understand who we truly are as human beings, we will never understand what God's grace is all about. You can't. It's impossible. Well, what does this doctrine of grace alone mean? Sometimes we define grace as unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of God. We've heard that. We don't deserve it. It's something that he gives to us that we don't deserve. And that's okay. That's a good definition, but it it doesn't really go far enough because grace really is the contrary to merit favor of God. In other words, he's giving you something you definitely don't deserve and you don't merit it. Because I knew when I was pulling weeds for Mrs. Lewis that, you know what, this would merit me some money. I wasn't over there just to help my neighbor. (laughs) That wasn't my idea of fun. I wanted pay for the work that I did. And I felt I merited it. See, God's grace is that in him which causes him to reach out to guilty sinners who deserve what? Deserve death, deserve hell. And then he showers his grace upon us. 
And the cross makes that all possible. See, don't think of it this way. Some Christians think of it this way. Well, we were spiritual zeros and God kind of pulled us over into the plus column. That's not really a good example. We're stuck in the eternal minus column. We can't get out of it. We have a deficit. And seeing our minus column condition, God transfers us from eternal minus to eternal plus. Grace means, first of all, that salvation starts with who? starts with God. It has to. It doesn't start with man. He's the one who takes the initiative. He's the one who makes the first move, the Bible says. If God didn't make the first move, guess what? None of us would be here. We wouldn't come to him. We would never make a move toward God. Some people think that grace means, well, we do our part and God does his. But that's not true. We have a, especially in our country, we have this can-do mentality, which is good. The can-do spirit of the American people is is a wonderful thing. It's a great blessing. It's gotten us through some very dark times. But I just want you to know that when you apply that can-do mentality to your own salvation, it's not a blessing. It's a deadly poison. Grace means we owe everything to God. But what if someone asks you this question? Well, don't I have a part to play? And I read this example, I think, a couple weeks ago when Harry Ironside was um, asked that question. And somebody rose up within his service to give his testimony. And he talked about all that God had done for him. And somebody said, well, what was your part? And the man said, well, my part was to run away from God as fast as I could. And I kept running until he finally caught me. (laughs) That's our part in salvation. See, grace teaches us that only our part in salvation, the only part we have is to do the sinning and the running away from a God who wants to love us and save us. He does all the rest. Well, what is the the true condition of man? What is the true human condition? We've seen that already in the verses we looked at. But let's look at a couple other verses. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul already told us there's none righteous. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says that before we come to Christ, before we're saved, we were so dead that only God can make us alive. He says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we were all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, like the rest of mankind. So Paul in Ephesians 2, 1, basically tells us that we were so dead that only God could save us. Only God could make us alive. There was no hope outside of his wonderful salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
verse 4, the Apostle Paul once again says there, he says, in their case, the God of this world has what? Blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Before we came to Christ, we were so blind that only God could give us sight. Only God could give us sight. See, it's not about taking the Bible and trying to figure it out and one day, you know, oh, I got it, I got it. No. Without the Spirit of God quickening your mind, without the, 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 the Father himself drawing you, you're not going to get it. Because it is something that God does. Well, the third thing here, before we were saved about our condition, we were so sinful that only God could forgive us. Only God could forgive us. In Psalm 51, verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So that indicates that from the very beginning, it's not that you're born and you get bad. You're born bad. (laughs) Okay? You're born sinner. The little babies, they're sinners. You don't have to teach a little baby to misbehave. They just naturally misbehave. Okay, why do they do that? Because they're sinners. Only God can change someone like that. Only God can forgive someone like that. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible tells us very clearly that the heart is deceitful above all things. Notice it doesn't say some things. It doesn't say most things. It says all things. And it's desperately sick or evil. Who can understand it? The idea is nobody but God. We are so bad that only God can make us good. See, this is the true condition of who we are as humans. And this is a blanket statement across Mankind. In Luke 19.10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save who? The lost. We were so lost that only God could save us. There was no other hope. That's why Christ came. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead. He paid the price for our sin so that we could be saved, so that we could have reconciliation we can be brought back to the proper position in our relationship with our God and creator but it's only through God's forgiveness it's only through God making us good in Jeremiah 13:23 it tells us that we are so helpless that only God could change us and he uses this illustration and i think it's interesting he says can an ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots then also you can do good who are then also who can do good who are, who are accustomed to do evil all right the idea is is that we're so helpless there's no help within ourselves we're so helpless that only god can change us god needs to transform us see and that's the the misnomer a lot of times even within christianity when people speak of salvation, when people speak of getting saved, what do they talk about? Well, they're just they're taking their life as they know it to be now, and they're just simply adding Jesus to the mix. Okay, well, I'll go to church once a week. I'll pray before meals. I'll crack my Bible open once in a while and read a verse here or there. And somehow they feel that that makes them a Christian. 
That somehow that that's, that's what that transformation is all about when it's not. It's something that God has to do from within us. Very clearly, the, the heart is deceitful, he says, above all things. Well, who can change that? Only God can. God has to transform us. So in short, without Jesus, we're sinful, lost, helpless, hopeless, doomed. We're damned to hell forever and ever. That's what the Bible says. And you know what? There's nothing in us worth saving. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And you know what? If God doesn't do something, we're in big trouble. Because we will not be saved. And that's the true condition of every man, every woman, born on this planet. And it kind of paints a bleak picture. But that's what's so wonderful about God's grace. Because what does the Bible say about God's grace? Well, the Bible teaches us that God's grace is part of his basic character. See, it's not something that he just adds to himself. No, it's who he is. We serve a gracious God. He could no more be ungracious than he could be unjust. It's part of his attributes. It's who he is as a being. And because God is gracious, because God does willfully give his grace, give good things to those who don't deserve it, because he's gracious and the human race is sinful, you have to understand that grace must always come from where? It has to come from above. It's not going to come from within you. It's not going to come from someone by you. It's going to come from above. It starts with God. And it comes rolling down to man like a mighty ocean and overwhelms his soul. Please understand, grace never starts with mankind. It always starts with God. It has to. It comes down from him, and it reaches out to us where we are. And that's why grace is free. There's no, we don't have to pay anything for it. We hear that term sometimes, and it's confusing. We hear the term free grace. You ever heard that? Well, I think it's a redundant term. Because grace in and of itself is free. If grace isn't free, guess what? It's not grace. If God somehow says, well, you know what? I want to I wanna save you by my grace. But, <laughs> guess what? You got to do this, you got to do that. You gotta, ah, that's not grace. If you have to pay for it, or you have to do anything to earn it, or you have to somehow deserve it, or even if you have to do something later on to prove That you really have it. That's not grace at all. Grace is free to us. It costs us nothing. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that it's a gift of God. It's not from us, lest we boast about it. Grace is the reason why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. John 3, 16, for God what? So loved the world. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say he charged us for his only begotten son. It says he gave his only begotten son. 
Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. By the way, we do have another way that you can access resources from us here at Graceful Truth. Simply download our brand new app. As you go to the App Store, simply look for gracebiblechurch-ca. Free and ready for download on Android and OS App Stores. Thank you so much for taking advantage of these resource materials. It's our hope and prayer that you are using them for your further growth in Christ. Again, simply go to the App Store and look for gracebiblechurch-ca and download our app today. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.